This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. Hi, guys. Today, I've got a special guest on the podcast. His name is Danny Ray. So he is a professional magician and an author. He is the first magician we've had on this show. So there we go. He has appeared on the Fool Us show with Penn & Teller. He did that just last year. And he's also the author of a book called No, I Can't Make Your Wife Disappear, A Magician's Guide to Magic or to a magical marriage. Didn't want to mess up the thing. A magician's guide to a magical marriage. So here's the thing about this interview. So I obviously asked him, I asked him a lot about, you know, magicians and, you know, things that he likes and how he got into magic and all those types of things. But we get into some serious areas really from the beginning. We get into the fact that, you know, he wasn't raised by his biological father, but he was raised by another man, his stepfather and kind of how that affected him and affected his introversion and how he was going to get into magic. But as with anybody, when this interview was pitched to me. I was like, Hey, how do you, how do you do the magician thing and do the Christian thing? Like that just didn't seem like it would work in any way, shape or form because like a center point of magic is deception. And we know from all different examples in the Bible that, you know, deception is not a positive thing. It's not something that we should be working through, but that is something that he explained. I really liked his answer on that guys. I really enjoyed this interview with Danny Ray. I'm not going to keep him from you any longer. So without further ado, let's get into it. Danny Ray, welcome to Undaunted Life of Man's podcast. Hey, Kyle, thanks for having me. Looking forward to it. Okay, now I just told you off air that you're the first magician that we've ever had on this show, but I don't want to be offensive here. Are you a magician or are you an illusionist? Because like there's there's separate camps here and I don't want people thinking that I'm calling you the wrong thing. You, you don't want to call me like a necromancer or... No, 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 no. <laughs> See, I would never do such a thing. Never. Uh, I'm fine with either. So... In like the magic world, if I said illusionist, they think like grand illusion stage. But in the Christian world, we tend to use illusionist more than magician. But technically, I would be a close-up magician is primarily what I do. Is okay. Well, and, yeah. I will probably default to calling you a magician for the remainder of this. But if I slip in illusionist, don't judge me too uh, harshly. I'm but, yeah. In, in a broad way to start this is yeah. obviously that's a very unique interest. Uh, a lot of people like watching magic or like watching illusions, but it's not ever something that they thought they would themselves would practice doing. I know I got like a magic kit when yeah. I was a little kid, but I was so terrible at finding the little seam in the card, you know, with my thumb or whatever. So for you, I guess, when did you start being interested in magic? Yeah, I think I would say like a similar thing where a lot of, you know, um, young boys, sometimes girls will get into um, sleight of hand when they're a kid or they're interested in magic. And so I was probably eight years old and got like a flip stick, you know, where, you know, it could change colors using a certain move. And mm. and then by 10 o'clock or 10 o'clock, ah, uh, <laughs> uh, by 10, I, I got my first magic book called Close Up Magic by Harry Lorraine. And it was primarily a card book. And I started working on, you know, card tricks and sleight of hand. And yeah, and I just never gave it up. I just kept working on it and developing it. And I think with my growing up, uh, you know, I had um, two two dads, one that was present, one that was absent. And I think that, you know, the the absence of your biological father, there's, there's a... Um, a depth of pain there that I don't think I was aware of at 10 years old. And so when I found this, it became my escape. And so I just, I would work on it day and night to kind of escape the, the pain, the struggle. 
Yeah. Okay. I was going to get into this later on in the show, but since you brought it up, let's go heavy. Let's go heavy right from the beginning. But obviously growing up without your biological father, but you were essentially raised by a man, but it was your stepfather. Yeah. Uh, you've already said how that kind of affected how you internalize yourself because magic is something that you perform for people, but you practice in private, like the, the reps over and over and over getting good at it. And then you just basically try to fine tune it in front of people. Right. Um, what else in your life uh, affected you in that way? Because it wasn't like your biological father you know, just wasn't there. And there was no other man that filled the gap. There was another male there, but yeah. kind of give me a little bit more insight there. Yeah. So I think when, when you, you know, the way God's designed a family is when that um, person that, you know, is supposed to be part of your, your life leaves. I think there's an absence in, in people that's just hard. To, and this is why I think we have a lot of daddy issues in our cultures is men sometimes don't stick around. Men don't, uh, you know, do what God's called them to do in that area. And then uh, it, it's hard to define timelines on this, but there was, you know, sexual abuse and, uh, you know, just things that weren't supposed to happen. And you feel like there, there should have been somebody there to protect you. And, and so those things like got internalized too. So, you know, where's the protector? Where's the father? And even though my, my stepdad, or, you know, he's my dad, he was awesome. There was just a lot of things that he wasn't aware of at that time. And later on when he became aware, you know, we were able to talk, talk about those things, but yeah, I, I think that those early years were really defined by the, the absence of a father and escaping in the only way I knew how, which was through sleight of hand. So with that in mind, uh, I'm curious, and if this is prying a little bit too much too early in the show, you can just tell me to piss off. But at the same time, I feel like you're when you're doing magic and we're doing when you're doing these things like card tricks are super impressive. People love them and it blows their mind and all that. Do you feel like in a way you were trying to get good at those things so that you could gain acceptance from other men? Because obviously you, you tried this in front of men and it was almost like, hey, Danny, you did a great job. I'm proud of you. Is that a part of it there? Or was it just, no, it was a great hobby. Am I reading into it too much, I guess? Um, no, there was definitely part of that. Like, a, uh, But I was so introverted at that time and mm -hmm. very few people saw outside of family members and aunts and uncles you know, what I did, I think at 12 years old, I did a, a show called Razzle Dazzle. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and I definitely wanted to impress, make proud, you know, uh, have people, you know, go, wow, you're, you're good at that. And I was okay at 12, you know, but I think that right. began uh, a search in me for, you know, why am I, why am I empty? You know, and I didn't, you know, grow up in the church. It wasn't want to be until I was 17 years old that I, I gave my life to Christ. And so early on, like that, that emptiness trying to, you know, um, fill it with magic eventually with, you know, with girls, you know, um, you know, dating and all, all that stuff. But it, you know, wasn't filling that, that hole. So for you, was, was magic a conduit through which you became more extroverted or was that just kind of something that happened over time as you grew older? Did something change when you did accept Christ at the age of 17? Kind of help me out with that. Yeah, I think probably to a certain degree, I'm still pretty introverted, even though okay. I'm in a lot of social settings all the time mm -hmm. and I really enjoy those. And it's, so I wouldn't say like I, 
in terms of introvert, like I just don't want to be around anybody, you know. Uh, but mm. I think what what happened was at 15 years old, I got a job at a restaurant in my my dad, my stepdad. Right. Um, he would go every week for three years through high school with me to this restaurant and I would go to tables. And it's if you ever have to go, you know, go up to a table and greet somebody and say, hey, I do. Uh, magic do you want to see something and they reject you like <laughs> at 15 years old like it's like ah, yeah. you know especially <laughs> when you're not, like yeah it stings it, it especially when you're not super um extrovert like ah, i don't care i cared you know um and i go back to my dad and they're like oh i, I don't know if i can do this he's all uh you know you have to um keep going look at this table over here they look like you know they would have fun so i would go on the next table would love it you know and so i learned the rhythms of that and i, I learned how to read people's body language a little bit better than I did at 15 when I started out. You know, people would be really intimate in a conversation, almost nose to nose. And I'm trying to like, hey, you want to see a magic trick? (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I had to learn those social cues and stuff. But that helped get me, I think, out of like just doing bedroom magic for the mirror, you know, and going, okay, these are real people that have real reactions. There's a real conversation going on. And so I had to learn that. And, and it was, I, I love learning that, that side of it and doing it for real people became a real joy of my life. That's awesome. So you're, you're kind of working your way to getting out of your shell you're dealing with rejection. You've got all that stuff kind of going around, but this is kind of the big thing. Like whenever, uh, whenever we figured out we were going to have you on the show and all that, I was like, yeah. okay, Christian magician, like th- those things don't seem like they jive very much because, yeah. you know, a, a, a major center point of magic or illusion is, uh, <clears throat> Uh, kind of misguiding people and taking them on a journey and not always being completely forthright with them, which is akin to lying. And so for me, it's like, obviously it's not like I don't enjoy magic as a Christian, but I could see maybe even at the age of 17, you accept Christ. Did that create an issue for you that you were working on something that was deception Uh, and how, you know, we see so many examples in the Bible of deception being called out as being sinful. So that's, that's the million dollar question for the day, magic and Christianity. How do they mix? Yeah, so I get that, you know, and here's here's what I'm convinced of. If somebody's like, magic's always wrong, there's never, like, they're not going to even enter into a conversation. I've, I've tried to have those conversations, and some people are just so convinced because it's the same word that's used in the Bible. And at 17, I read the Bible, you know, for the first time. I don't know if I read all the way through it, but I was reading different parts and, you know, read magicians are going to hell. I was like, ah, that's not good. <laughs> um, I don't know much, but I know that's not good. Right. And so right. I I went to my youth pastor at the time and a couple other leaders and they were like, no, no, what's going on in the New Testament, Old Testament with like calling up the dead and, um, you know, uh, calling on evil spirits, all this stuff that has nothing to do with like, hey, here's a card trick, you know, in. So when we talk about deception or lying is, first of all, in all of my presentations, I try to be as truthful as I possibly can be, even though everybody understands in a magic show like you're you're entering into a world where you want to be fooled right and so for that to happen you understand that the magician's going to do things to if if you will deceive you but it's under that premise of of entertainment i'm not trying to take advantage of people or you know take somebody's money or do like you know like cruel things that I mean, there was a TV show a while ago that, you know, where somebody would 
get people's information and say that they're talking to the dead. And right. that stuff is so cringy to me because it's so personal. And I, I've read a thousand things on that, on how to do that. And it works. The problem is, is you really are deceiving somebody at that point because you're not talking to their their person that's passed on, even if you're saying you are, and it might even bring healing, but the ends don't justify the means in that. And how many people are broken when they find out that what what really happened wasn't true. And so, yeah, so my my thing is it's entertainment. I think everybody going to a magic show these days isn't like, is he calling on demons to Right. You know, bring the car to the top of the deck. Like, please, you know, like, <laughs> you know, like, is it possible that, you know, this person worked on that technique to fool you? You know, like it's, that's a much higher, higher probability. It, but that's where I would say is we need to not leave our brains at the door either is, you know, the, look at other options besides there's a demon behind every door, you know, that type of thing. So. Right. Absolutely. That's what I figured you would say something along those lines, because if you look at things categorically without putting context to it, it becomes a little bit of an issue. But again, I know people that they will not let their kids dress up for Halloween because it's all Hallow's Eve. It's satanic. It's all those different things. And then there are other people that are on the Christian side. They're like, it's not that big a deal. My my kid wants to dress up as Buzz Lightyear and go get candy. Like it's not, it's not the same thing, but for, you know, for different people, there's, there's lines that they're unwilling to cross and, and that's good. And that's, that's up to them. But for you, obviously everyone knows now you are, working as a professional magician, but that was not always your profession. So you actually worked in ministry before you decided to, you know, follow your dream as it were. So kind of take us through that trajectory because it's like, you know, this magic thing could just kind of be a thing that you do on the side, you do a few parties per year, and then you've got your real job or whatever. But at some point you drew a line in the sand and you're like, no, I'm burning the ships. I'm going for it. So take us through that whole transition. Yeah. So 17 years old, gave my life to Christ at 18 years old. I do a show and there's, there's a guy that sees the show. He's a world-renowned magician. And he says, look, Danny, I love your stuff. I'm going on tour. I'm starting out in Las Vegas, going over to New York, then over to Europe. And I want you to go with me. I want, I want to train you. I want to show you the ropes. And to me, this is like, this is my dream come true. I'm so excited. Difference is now I'm a follower of Christ. So I pray about it and feel like God's saying, do not do this. And I'm like, you know, like, but this is my dream, you know, and at that time, I wouldn't be able to articulate like, like that God's dreams are always bigger for us, that his dream for us is bigger than anything we could ever imagine. But at 18, I didn't know that. I just know God's telling me no. And so I, I went to this guy and said, you know, can't, or I called him up and said, you know, can't do it. And so uh, at that, during that same year, when I was 18, I, or I guess I would have been 19. I'm at 19, got involved in youth ministry and, you know, I'm volunteering in youth ministry. And then when I graduated from seminary, I became the youth pastor. And that season was just incredible. Like I loved working with with students. I think God was preparing me to do more of a national, international ministry. And at 28 years old, we began to pray through what would it look like to really combine these two things together. And I'm reading through Romans 11, 29, and it says God's gifts and his calling are irrevocable. So, so they're designed to be tied together and it's strictable from one another. And so I knew at that point I needed to figure out how to combine these two. They were in two different worlds at that time. And so I'm at the gym 
and I'm on a stair. I'll say. I'll say machine. That sounds so much better. A machine. Yeah. I'm on a machine. Uh, But there's this magazine that I I wouldn't typically read. It's it's there though. So I start flipping through. I think it was like a time, maybe a Newsweek. And there's this article of this magician that I met when I was 18 years old. And he was up for all of these fraudulent charges for taking college students around the world. He would rack up their visas or their credit cards and then once they maxed it out, he would leave them stranded around the world. Well, it, wow. that, yeah, it was a crazy thing as I'm praying through this going, God was protecting me at 18 and now at 28 showing me now's the time. And so, so we began to pray, seek wise counsel. And in 2003, we launched to do this as a, as a full-time ministry. That's amazing. And so you've done this full time. You've done a lot of touring. You've done tons of shows. I mean, probably uh, definitely hundreds, but if not thousands and thousands of shows. But then it seems that it all kind of culminated with your appearance on Fool Us with Penn and Teller. And so I actually met uh, met Penn, uh, you know, at an event in New York uh, years back. So great guy, but obviously, you know, very, very secular, very, very atheistic type person. So that I'm sure was interesting. But for those in the audience that are unfamiliar with the show Fool Us, yeah. What is the point of that show? And I guess, how did you manage to get an invitation to go on there with your trick? Yeah, the, the idea behind the show is, can you, as a magician, fool two of the greatest minds in magic, regardless of people's opinion of Penn and Teller from like, you know, um, their their thoughts on atheism or on, you know, faith. Uh, the, the reality is they're both very intelligent men that know magic really well, and they've studied it for decades. They've had live shows in Vegas for decades, you know? And so the idea behind the show is, can you fool them? And the people that go on to the show, there's thousands of people that audition, handful of people that get on there, but only about 10% of the people that get on there fool them. And the thing with it is they're trying to help magicians' careers and whether you fool them or not, it really helps, you know, your, your career as a magician, but they're not going to just say, oh yeah, we need, you know, if we have four people on the show, we need one person to fool us every week and three people right. not to fool us. They don't have a recipe. And it's just, if you fool them, you do. If you don't, you don't, you know? And so, so yeah, the, the, what led to going on the show is I've had people ask for years if I go on, you know, they're after a show, People will come up, you should go on AG, you know, America's Got Talent. You should go on Penn and Teller. And we just said, no, no. And we'd pray about it and really didn't feel like led to do that. And then during the pandemic, we uh, were praying about it. And some other people had challenged me to do it at that time. And so we submitted a video and through the exchange of like 23 emails, we ended up. <laughs> so all that to say, long process. Uh, we right. ended up getting an invitation to go to Vegas and perform for them. So that that's awesome. So you get there and I'm just going to leave it to you right now. Take us through the entire experience. Guys, in the show notes, I'll put a video of the performance and all that so you can check it out. It's on your website. I'll make sure you guys have that. But, you know, what was it like? How did it turn out? Take us through the whole thing. Yeah, so uh, it's April 9th and I get an invitation like, hey, we'll see you in Vegas. And I was excited. And then that came in at um, 1236, I believe, p.m. At 1237, I went, how do I fool them? <laughs> and then I'm an early guy. So 4.01 a.m. the next morning, I'm like, how do I fool them? And so I had 70 days to develop. Like, So essentially, if you do, haven't seen the routine, I play Russian roulette 
with my eyeball. And so uh, essentially, if this piece doesn't work, there's a giant hook that's going to gouge out my eyeball. That's fun. So, <laughs> which is right up um, Penn and Teller's alley, right? So, so I start working with the executive producers and the magic consultant, and we took something that was a really simple method. And I started to just put layer upon layer on top of this to really develop something that I really thought would fool them. And so there's eight different layers to this piece that they wouldn't just be able to say, oh, we think you did this. They would have to say, we think you did kind of a combination of things. And so I went from a piece I've done literally thousands of times to literally killing it and rebirthing it. And I started practicing six to 10 hours a day. I would take 45 seconds of the routine and practice that 45 seconds, then reset it and then start it again at that minute. And I would do that all day long and just did that day after day. I would do that for 10 days at a time and then work on the next 45 seconds and then do that, work on the next 45 seconds. And then the week before I, I show up um, for Penn and Teller, there's a, another magician that I highly respect that's also a follower of Christ. And he said, he calls me up. He said, hey, I just heard you're going to be on Foolish next week. And I was like, yeah. Uh, he's like, I think you should throw in the towel. Mm. I was like, what? I was like, I mean, we've been praying. We've been working. I'm like, where is this coming from? He's all, look, I've worked with them before. You know, he's a, uh, he's older than I am. He's yeah. uh, he's worked with them before. He's like, they, they are cruel towards Christians. Um, he's like, I don't think you should do this. And I was like, oh. and he's like, I want you to watch some other videos. I'll send you some links. I'll, you know, and you could look up for yourself. It's all over the internet. And he's like, I, I want you to pray about this. And this is a guy, I, like, I love this guy and respect him. And we've had a great rela relationship for a long time. And so I pray about it, but we just still feel like this strong and watched a bunch of stuff, a strong like urgency to, to go there and to be a light and to be who God's designed me to be, to go in the world, but not be of the world. And so I, I called him back and he kind of like pleaded with me a little bit more. And like one of his questions was like, do you really want a giant FU trophy? If you haven't seen the trophy before, it says fool us in the letters F, it, the letters F and U are huge. And then the, right. you know, for the fool is O-O-L in real tiny letters. He's like, do you really want a giant F-U trophy? Do you think that's an accident? I'm like, well, kind of, you know, but yeah. I didn't say that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, but I, I understood that what he was saying is like, do you want something that's going to kind of represent this worldly, you know, um, stuff? And so he prayed with me. He knew like I was committed to doing it. And he prayed that, you know, I would uh, be a light, that I'd fool him, that I'd do great, all that stuff. And so I get away from that conversation and I just start praying more. Well, I, I start reading through the book of Romans during that, that time. Fast forward a week. It's the day of the performance. And I have a, a long prayer that I wrote up and had a team of people that via Zoom, we prayed together. But my prayer that morning was like, God, I, I pray that you would help me to fool these two guys. And that morning I read through Romans 8, the, you know, that famous chapter and came to that passage where if God is for us, 
F you for us who can be against us. And like that for us just like stood out. And I was like, whoa, God, if you're for us, this trophy could go from fool us to a giant F you to the world to for us. God, you're in the business of redeeming things and turning the world upside down. In Acts 17, 6, it says, you know, that they were men who turned the world upside down. I was like, God, I want to be a part of those men that turn the world upside down. If, and this is in my prayer. You know, if you allow me to fool them today, I will turn the trophy upside down if I win. And so, uh, so I... I go downstairs, I go to the theater, they put me in, you know, kind of the basement of Penn and Teller's like cellar of like all their old illusions. I'm looking around like, oh, wow. Okay, we have a lot of stuff here. (laughs) And um, eventually they call me upstairs. You do a dress rehearsal right before you go on with Penn and Teller. The dress rehearsal consists of a, a fake Allison, if you will, a stand-in Allison, because that's who I'm going to do the the piece for. She's the mm-hmm. the host, Penn and Teller. You're performing for them, and so uh, so right before they come on, I do this um, um, rehearsal, and in the middle of the rehearsal, I forget one of my lines. Now I've worked on this once or twice a week <laughs> with the executive producers. They're in the room, the director's in the room, um, a stage manager, a bunch of different people are in the room. And I'm like, hey guys, I need my line. I know you, uh, you know it, silence. Every time we practice Zoom, if I forgot something, they just say, oh, it's this, you know, silence. And I'm like, hey guys, seriously, I don't know. And you know, the person's right here. I'm like, I guess I'm just gonna do it. And so I finish it and they're like, hey Danny, uh, we're not, you know, this after I finish, they're like, we're not going to give you any lines anymore. It's like either sink, swim, do it. And I'm like, oh man, well, the line I missed was I only have one shot to get this right. And so they're like, you know, head backstage, we're going to bring them out. So I walk backstage and I don't know if you're familiar with Hamilton, but there's a song in there where I'm not going to miss my shot. So I'm literally backstage, not going to miss my shot, not going to miss my shot. This is my shot. Don't miss my shot. You know? And so then I walk out, you know, they invite me out and, if you're not familiar with Penn and Teller, um, Penn does all of the talking in the show and Teller is mute. He doesn't say anything. But when I walk out there, Teller's like, hey, Danny, <laughs> this is yeah. the first time I've ever heard him talk. You know, <laughs> he's like, you're going to do great out there. I'm like, oh, thanks. He's like, have fun. I'm like, uh, I'm looking forward to it. And then, you know, Penn says, yeah, uh, have fun. It's uh it's always, uh, you know, fun seeing what people come up with, looking forward to it. And then they start talking amongst themselves. I do a couple stretches. And then Allison's off to stage left and she's talking to the stage manager and they finish up. All the lights come up. And by the way, there's 31 cameras in the room. So if you ever watch the show, they have an iPad um, where I don't know if it's an iPad, but they have some sort of device that they're on where they could look at all the different cameras. So you can't just like fool them from one angle. You have to fool them from Mm -hmm. every angle. And so um, Allison, she's off to stage left. She introduces, walks over. I do the entire piece um, for them. And then what happens is you walk in front of the table and there, there was actually an area to stand if you're vaccinated, another area if you're not vaccinated, <laughs> um, the crazy times we're in. So I take my place. We have a um, a, a conversation on television. What it looks like is Alice and I talk for about 10, 15 seconds. And then 
kind of tell her talk for about 10 or 15 seconds about the illusion. And then they go, okay, here's how we think you did it. In reality, that's about a 15 to 20 minute conversation. And so Allison and I are talking, there's a whole interview that's done. You know, she's asking me tons of questions. They're talking about the piece and the magic consultant who knew part of the method, I started to tell him like, here's part of it, here's part of it. He's, oh yeah, that's enough. If they figure out this much, you know, that's that's enough. That's gonna, they're gonna say, you know, it, it didn't fool them. And so they, they talk about it, eventually invite me back. And they, um, uh, the, the first thing that happens is Penn says, you know, Danny, there's, imagine that if, you know, those holes, I have metal plates that have holes. He's like, imagine one of those is off center. That would give a magician a certain amount of leeway to do certain things. And then I immediately said, well, that's not how, you know, it's, it's done. And he's like, oh, no, no, we're not saying that's our guess. I was like, dang it. How yeah. like by process of elimination, you know, like, so I'm like, okay, I can't say anything anymore because how many guesses does this guy get? Right. And so they, they take another guess and, uh, which was if the device was gimmicked, I, I welcomed them up to say you're, you're welcome. Or no, I didn't welcome them up. I said, you're welcome to check it out. I was told by the magic consultant that executive producers, oh yeah, they'll, they'll, they won't come up. It doesn't matter. Cause can you imagine like them coming up? Like there's gimmicks everywhere, you know? And when they did come up and Penn put his giant claw by some of the gimmicks, I'm like, Oh no. Um, but it was like, well, we're just going to have to like trust some of the psychology of like, I didn't move anything. In fact, I dropped one of the gimmicks like right by his hand. Cause I know if you take something and you put it on the other side, it immediately draws attention to it. And so I just like, oh, it doesn't matter and dropped it right in front of him. And uh, then, you know, they examined it and then Penn said, well, if that's not how it's done, you definitely fooled us. And the trophy came down. And then I, you know, I shook his hand. I took the trophy. Here's the trophy. Uh, there it is. But I, I had practiced what it would look like in my room, you know, but I was just like, okay, I have it in my hand. How am I going to turn it upside down? And so I grab, I say, thank you. And I turn it upside down and walk off stage. Well, little did I know they would freak out. Um, so the, everybody, so you have two large teams, one large team backstage from another stage managers back there. There's another um, person uh, directing different stuff back there. All your sound tech, all that stuff is back there. Um, the other magicians are ready now back there. Well, when I get back, there starts kind of bickering between the stage manager, like, we need to get Danny back here. The other guy, like, we're not letting him back. We need to get the other team. And they go back and forth. The executive producer's like, no, we need to finish one shot. I knew exactly why, right? But I I was just like, well, and this was this is something that's like between me and God. Like I wasn't like, I didn't know what, what was going to happen. You know, I just was like praying and went, got it. You know, I want to be a part of your redemption process. I'm going to turn the trophy upside down and represent, you know, that this is now represents for us, that you are for us, for, for Penn and Teller, that you're for the executive producers, that you're for us. Right. And so I, I'm like watching them kind of go back and forth. And then eventually I'm like, what do you want me to do? He's all, you're not going back out there. I was like, okay. Um, and so they argue it out. And then it's like, nope, um, we're going to bring the next people on. 
And so they went, okay, now you could go back out, grab your stuff. And so I talked to Penn and Teller for a minute while I was out there and, you know, but basically I just grabbed my stuff um, and went off stage. So I had no idea whether that part would air or not, or whether they would cut it, but they took a camera from a little bit further back. And sure enough, you have that moment where I turn the, the trophy upside down and uh, yeah. And so what a, a crazy moment in time. Yeah. Great experience. I'm glad you were able to go into all that detail. Cause again, when you watch the video, it's just like, okay, this is happening. And I mean, I can't imagine the amount of time that you put into practicing it and, you know, not doing a card trick, but choosing to do something that could have more things that could go wrong. I'm sure that was stressful, but yeah. what a cool experience for you to do. Uh, now I want to get into some kind of categorical stuff with kind of magic and different magicians. So for you personally, because yeah. I, I did some looking up online and people have their own opinions and everything like that. Yeah. I want to know who you think in your opinion is the greatest magician of all time and then oh, separately wow. and they may be the same person who's your favorite magician of all time wow that's a I, yeah I'm I don't you know pick your favorite I, kid I'm doing it exactly is there are so many great influences if I if I had to pick one there's so the thing is is like most of the guys that I love and I'm uh, like I just think their stuff is off the charts amazing are people that only in the community would know. So Daya Vernon would be that person for me. He had more influence on my magic probably than any other person. And I would read his stuff and devour it and work on his material. Uh, of the more famous magicians, uh, David Copperfield had a, a massive influence. You know, I'd watch him on television and was completely like inspired. But every, his inspiration for me if, if you ever, have ever watched one of his shows, he does all of this like giant grand illusion, but then he does this one like piece that will be close up magic every time in a show, just one, one, maybe two pieces. Well, he would always say like, that's the, the piece that always does the best. Well, when I was, you know, I think 19 or 20 years old, well, actually, no, when I was, uh, 17 years old, I did a show for 2000 people for the first time. It was really just one or two tricks that I did that somebody knew I did, you know, sleight of hand, they brought me up and I did it. I had no idea if it'd work well for 2000 people. It did. I think at 20 years old, I did it for the first time for 500 people, a whole show. And that kind of gave the genesis for like, oh, this could work to do a whole close up show. Because when I started doing it, it's become a little bit more popular, maybe in the last four or five years. But when I first started doing it, I couldn't find anybody, Christian or not, that was doing a whole close-up show on stage and having it work. I talked to guys that, that said, oh, yeah, that's terrible. It, it doesn't work. We've seen guys do it. And they would name, like, you know, popular guys. And I, I would watch it. And basically, they would sit down on stage at a table, invite people up. And so they they didn't have like any interaction. It was just like, mm -hmm. I'm just going to do my close-up stuff here and you should like it. And so I had to figure out kind of that combination of st stage presence, if you will, and using different parts of the stage and using, you know, different people in the audience, yet still using just primarily, you know, cards, coins, rubber bands, cup and ball, you know, things that are, close up in nature to watch. But what we would hear is I was in the back of the room, but it was like, I was right there with you. And so that helped us to get a glimpse inside that this could work for any size group. 
Well, that was actually going to be my next question. In your opinion, what kind of magic is better? You know, the up close sleight of hand stuff like the David Blaine stuff on the street kind of a thing or the big theatrical productions like David Copperfield does. And I, I am asking, you know, which is better? I know they're both difficult, but what do you think is better? Yeah, I, I think you're right. They're, they're both difficult in different routes. Like one is very theatrical, you know, and we could say, oh, well, you know, they're just dancing around a box. But to think about the choreography and the, the moments and the timing that goes into a stage piece like that is, is part of the, you know, creating that experience. Now, I think most magicians would agree, like the technical side of close-up magic just requires a lot more technique and, and development that way. But stage magic, it just takes a different mind to develop great stage pieces. And really when you develop uh, a piece, you know, like Sawing a Woman in Two, which uh, 2021 was the the 100 year anniversary of Sawing a Woman in, in Two. And at the time, that wasn't just the greatest like magic trick. It was the greatest piece of entertainment. People were coming from everywhere to see a woman like it was it was like this piece that people would hear about and everybody wanted to see it and so now you know it's just kind of commonplace um but yeah for for me i think that the sleight of hand is the the stuff that i enjoy the most i'll put it that way i know there's other people that might enjoy stage but i do think they're they're um the same art with different branches, you know, so you have like comedy magic, close-up magic, stage right. magic, you know, there's different branches uh, of magic and I've learned to enjoy, you know, most of those. So. Yeah. I would say when you strip away the dancers and the lights and the smoke and all that stuff, and it's just right there in front of you. Like that's why when you watch some of the David Blaine videos and you're seeing yeah. like these celebrities or people like they're right there on top of them and they can't figure out what he's doing. Like it's mind blowing, even just watching it on video. But one thing I was curious about as well, Danny is yeah. your thoughts on the masked magician. <laughs> okay. So that was Val Valentino uh, in, yeah. in the nineties. There was a TV show called breaking the magician's code. And I remember being very entertained by this as a viewer, right? Cause I'm, I'm in like elementary school at the time. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, this guy's like showing us all these magician secrets and all these types of things. How's he still alive? Why haven't they buried him in the desert by now? But I, I can't imagine being happy about it if I myself were a working magician, but then other people were like, no, Val Valentino was pushing magicians to be better and to, to create, you know, better illusions and things like that. But for you, uh, you know, were you aware of that show yeah, at the time? I and I guess what, well, you know, okay. So what, what were your thoughts on the mass magician? So initially, like what he was doing was like revealing mainly stage magic. So it didn't have like mm -hmm. as a uh, as a big of an impact on my career. Here's the problem with going like, oh, it's just going to push magicians, all that kind of stuff. Is it comes down to an ethics issue is you don't have you don't own the rights or the blood, the sweat, the tears that went into developing those pieces. And so that's the, the painful part, but it's been going on for years. There was, you know, cigarettes you could get at one point. I, I want to say this was like in the twenties or thirties where inside of the pack of cigarettes, there was the revealing of a magic trick. Now it was like a really simple like thing, yeah. but it's been going on for, for years. And now with the rise of YouTube, obviously you could get almost anything out there in the, the excuse that way is, 
I'm more interested in how it's done. If you look at magic as a puzzle, but magic isn't designed to be a puzzle. Nobody at the end of building a puzzle is like, my mind is blown. I do not know where reality is right now. Right. That's not the way a puzzle works. I don't care. Name any puzzle you want. No, you know, Rubik's Cube, arguably the greatest puzzle of, of our day, right? Um, nobody like solves it and they're just like, this is the greatest moment, you know, um, but when David Copperfield makes the Statue of Liberty disappear, when you have something, if you've ever been to a close-up show and something changes right in your hands, there's a moment of astonishment that is real. Um, you know, the, the sleight of hand and all that kind of stuff, you know, isn't the, the real part. That could be explained. But those moments that take us back to that child um, childlike wonder is real. And that's the part that you can't explain is what is it? that that create or that i guess that's the deeper part that interests me is more the psychology of how do you fool somebody how with penn and teller how did i figure out how do you fool two guys that know everything you know and had to come at it from different angles and so yeah exposure i think is just a part of the culture now but to me ethically i've designed my own pieces and they take years to develop and for somebody in fact you could look at quote unquote, the exposure of my tricks. Somebody has like, here's how Danny did it. That's not how I did it. Um, that's just yeah. that guy's theory on how it's done. And he comes up, he put a lot of time into this thing, both the video side of it and coming up with a method. I was like, wow, that's like a legitimate method. It wouldn't work, but it's like a legitimate, if I was doing it with paper, maybe that could work, but doing it with metal and he didn't, he didn't put that into the equation, but it's kind of a bummer for, for those things that he doesn't have to put two years of his life into developing that. He just has to put, he probably put, you know, maybe a hundred hours into that project, maybe a little bit more, but I put years of my life into developing that. And so, uh, but at the end of the day, he doesn't expose it, but for people who were, aren't in the know, which there's only two people in the world who know how I did it, you know, um, they're going to go, oh, that's how he did it. And assume that that's true when it's, you know, it's not. So it's those things I, I think are just part of the culture, but I think it comes down to an ethics is, do you have the right to do that? Is that, um, is, but people aren't approaching it that way. I'm not, I don't think most followers of Christ are going, how can I expose everybody around me? But Anyways. Right. I understand. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I appreciate you going into that detail. Now, this next question yeah. is from my wife, because uh -oh. as I was preparing the interview, I was like, Hey babe, what would you ask a Christian magician? And that's the only tee up that I gave her. And yeah. she immediately responded. If you could do a magic trick for Jesus, which trick are you going with? Because I mean, wow. this is the son of God here. Like I'm assuming he can figure it out. Like if he can figure out what people are thinking in their heads and call them out for it, you know, I'm assuming that, you know, you'd have to do something a little bit different, but if you're before Jesus and you could do one trick for him, what are you doing? Wow. Uh, wow. So first of all, let's just be clear. I don't think I could fool Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're all assuming the same thing. Uh, but honestly, like I look at all of this stuff, you know, where it talks about, you know, in all things to glorify Christ. And, and so, you know, we pray before every show asking God to give us favor that this would be the best show we've ever done. And so I, I feel like all of it, you know, like I'm really trying to honor him with what I do, but 
if I was to to pick one, it would be the prediction that I do at the end of my show. But that would mean Jesus would have to sit through the whole show to get it, you know. Um, but the reason why is I always try to save my best stuff for, for last. But it also, to me, it, it represents what Jesus does in our life so well is just to give you like a little glimpse is at the end of my show, I have books that are scattered all over. I have hundreds of cards just everywhere. I have paper that's been ripped up that's everywhere. And I say, you know, what if in the middle of this mess, there's actually a plan? What if in the middle of our crazy lives, there's actually a plan? And so I wanted to give you a glimpse of that. And then I go through the prediction and I say, if I could come up with, you know, a, a plan and everything's like, oh, he meant to drop that card. He meant that book. He meant, you know, like it's all, all of a sudden it's like everything's coming together. It's like, you know, when you watch Sixth Sense for the first time, you're like, oh, right, oh, right. You know, like I'm trying to create that moment where you see all these pieces coming together. And I I think to, and I, I know Jesus sees me, but if, if he's like in the flesh thing, I don't, I'd want to see and just say, you know, he's the one that could do that for us to show us how things make sense in the middle of our mess, because our prayer is like, let's just get out. But Jesus seems to say, no, I'm going to be with you and take you through. And we, we, we don't like going through, you know, the struggle, the pain, the suffering, but it's clear in the scriptures that we don't get to avoid that. Absolutely. Uh, another thing I wanted to talk to you about, Danny, is you actually wrote a book. And so I've got it here. I appreciate you sending this our way. It's No, I Can't Make Your Wife Disappear, A Magician's Guide to a Magical Marriage. Yeah. So to my knowledge, you are the only magician slash illusionist that I know of that also has a marriage advice book. Okay. So if there's another one out there, I don't know that that's a big category of books. So take us through, I, I did have a question about something specifically from the book, but for you, why write a book? Why not write a how to do magic book or magic for kids or something like that? Why write a marriage advice book? Yeah, is as a pastor, I end up, you know, doing a lot of marriage counseling over the years. My wife and I, have, you know, done our fair share of counseling and, uh, we've gone to a bunch of conferences, read a bunch of books over the years. And the thing is, we we just wanted to figure out how can we help people have a strong marriage? Like, we just feel like this is the foundation for culture, period, is strong marriages. And they seem to be eroding fast in, I'll just say America. I don't know about the world, but America. And so... <laughs> We were coming up on our 25th anniversary, maybe at year 22, 23. And I was like, what would it look like to take biblical principles and magic principles and figure out where those line up and put a, a book together where we could, you know, there's a lot of fun and, uh, you know, of the magic side of it, but also some depth with like, here are some biblical principles and practical strategies for how you can live this, this out in your marriage. And so, yeah, for our 25th anniversary, we released, or actually we didn't release it then, but we were in the process of finishing it and worked out a book deal with it by that point. I wanted to release it on that date, but we ended up releasing it the same year. 
Gotcha. And so there's a lot of great tangible marriage advice in there. So guys that will be in the show notes as well that you can pick up a copy off your website, but there's kind of a crazy story in this book that I've got to get you to give me a little bit of info on. And it's from the introduction. I think you know where I'm going with this. You tell a crazy story. Okay. Like if you put yourself there, guys for listening to this, put yourself in this position and imagine what you would be thinking. You were underwater in a barrel. Okay. You were handcuffed and you lost your cool. So you lost your cool in the middle of this trick. And, you know, there are some consequences if you lose your cool and, you know, can't keep yourself together. You had to get saved. So I want to kind of get an idea of what was that like? And then how do you get your nerve back and, you know, get your edge back as a magician, you know, needing to do these things that are supposed to look more death defying than they actually are, but are dangerous. How do you regain that after having such a snafu? Yeah. So that was in um, New York. The, I don't, I don't know if I talk about this part of it. I think I do is the night before my daughter saw it for the first time and my wife ended up like carrying her out of the room and, you know, she was freaking out. And so I end up in New York the next night. I'm doing this piece in, uh, I would assume most of you haven't done underwater, um, underwater at school. So I, I trained for years and years and I have been able to work with the best escapologist in the world that's trained, trained David Blaine, that's trained Chris Angel, that's trained guys you wouldn't know that are different escapologists around the world. And I was able, he, he lives um, pretty close to me. So I've met with him for decades now and he, um, you know, trained me in these situations, like, here's what you need to do. Uh, so we would practice and when I would practice, you know, we would always like, you know, get a handcuff off and that's the only way you could get the outside world to hear. So you tap, um, from with the inside, uh, or with the handcuff on the inside of the chamber, you know, because there's no other way for them to physically see you. They can only hear you. Well, that night I'm underwater and I realize I've had my mind on my daughter and her freaking out. And I'm not out of my first handcuff and I'm starting to lose my air. And I don't know how long I was under. I know at that time I could hold my breath for a little over four minutes, but I had to be in the three minute range. And I start to let out air and I'm like, I'm not even out of the first handcuff. So instead of hitting the edge with the the inside of the chamber with a handcuff, I'm trying to hit it with both hands. Well, I could hear the music is so loud out there. I'm like, there's no way Jeremiah is going to hear me. So I try to get out of the first handcuff. I get just one part of it out and I start clicking. He has at least five of the locks on on the outside. I'm like, I don't have much time left. And I'm losing air by the second. And then all of a sudden, you know, I hear the lid lift and I just bolt out. I'm like, <gasps> you know, and just completely exhausted and out of breath. And Jeremiah and I talk for a minute. He's like, I don't think you should go back in there. I'm like, dude, I am not. I am not um, going to just get out. I'm doing this thing. He's like, okay, you need to take some deep breaths. He could tell like, you know, like I'm exhausted already. And so I do, you know, uh, a few breathing exercises there. And then I do it again. I go under and I cannot get focused. I come back out again. And Jeremiah's like, this is the last time. I don't care what happens. If you don't get out this time, I'm pulling you out physically. You're not doing this. 
And so I convince him to do it one more time. I, I go under and same thing. I just am not in a place where I could focus. And so I come up again and Jeremiah's like, we need to pull the plug on this. And so I get out, I go dry off and I come back out and I talk about, you know, sometimes we just fail and sometimes we make mistakes and sometimes we're not going to get out. We're not going to escape and we have to deal with the pain of that. And I literally just wanted to escape and just run a hundred miles away. But I go to the back of the room and person after person was so moved by that message. Honestly, I, I couldn't tell you like verbatim what I said. I just know the Holy Spirit had to have been speaking because people were just so moved by by that of the back of the room. Just thank you for not getting out. I'm all, what? This is dumb. You know, like I was supposed to get out, you know, but they were like, some people thought that's really the way I did it every time. I was like, no, I get out every time. Uh, but those are hard moments to go back to. The next time was difficult to like, am I going to get out of this again? I had another situation with a straight jacket and there's a hundred gimmick straight jackets. The problem is, is when you work with the best in the world, he's all, I will never put you in a, uh, in a straight jacket that's, um, that's gimmicked. And not only that, I'm going to put you in a small straight jacket. So you will have to struggle every time you will never have to act in this thing. I'm like, okay, well, when he strapped me in there the first time, I was like, this is absolutely impossible. How am I going to escape from this? But that's when I do, you know, escape stuff or this thing with the Russian light is I try to create as much believability, even though I am working on always having a way out, except for once. <laughs> Man, that I just got to tell you, like I'm getting like sweaty palms even thinking about that situation because it's like I don't want to be anywhere near something like that. So, I, but I appreciate you going into that detail. But Danny, before we let you go, there is something that I like to do towards the end of my yeah. interviews. It's a segment called "What Would You Say to Someone That Said." So, what I'm going to do is I'm okay. going to say, "What would you say to someone that said?" And I'm going to fill in the blank. But here's the deal. This is lightning round. Okay. All you right. get 30, you get 30 seconds maximum to respond to this random thing. And it's going to be all over the place. <laughs> but 30 seconds maximum. You're up for it? I, I love it. All right. Okay. Here's the first one. What would you say to someone that said magic is for children? I, I would say children don't know what magic is. They um you can't fool them. <laughs> you know, uh the the more you understand the world around you, the more you'll appreciate magic. All right. Next one here. What would you say to someone that said, there is no such thing as the perfect magic trick? I would agree. Um, it's always a work in process. It, you know, it's, it's a living, breathing art. Even though I've done a piece a thousand times, the next time I do it, I have to make sure I'm cognizant of everything that's around me uh, to make sure that that piece will work for that particular audience. All right. Next one here. What would you say to someone that said magic in all forms is satanic? I would say, uh, let's have a conversation about that. I, I think that's a long conversation. I think that's a deep set of beliefs. And I'd, I'd really want to be curious. And I have done this. I'd be curious of where, where that came from, where they were taught that and how uh, I, I would, I'd want to hear their story. Yeah. All right. What would you say to someone that said, I don't like being fooled? Uh, don't come to my show uh, <laughs> is yeah it is I, it's not just about being fool, fooled it's about 
experiencing that wonder and that amazement that's rare in our culture. Absolutely. What would you say to someone that said, my kid says that they want to be a magician someday? <laughs> uh, making mom proud. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully, hopefully that's how it goes. All right, just a few more left here. What would you say to someone that said, I don't know that God can save my marriage? Hmm. As I would say, God's in the business of doing the impossible. He loves you and hang in there. Don't give up. Do whatever it takes on your side of things to try to create a great marriage. All right. Just a couple more here. What would you say to someone that said, I know how you did that trick? Uh, I would probably just smile and laugh and like, okay. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah I'm sure you do. Uh, yeah. You know, and usually I'll listen to their method and go like, that's not how I did it. But, um, you know, smile and nod, smile and nod. <laughs> All right, Danny, last question of the day. What would you say to someone that said, I really wish you could make my wife disappear? <laughs> um, I would say she's, she's already paid to have you disappear. <laughs> hey, and I will say that's not me saying that that's somebody else. I love my wife. I don't want her to disappear. But Danny, I really appreciate all the detail that you've given us and all the stories that you told us. But that is all for me. Is there anything else you want to get off your chest? Um, no, thank you for having me on. Really, yeah, thankful for what you're doing, Kyle. And um, yeah, that's it. All right. Danny Ray, thank you for coming on on Daunted Life, a man's podcast. There you go, guys. I hope you enjoyed my time with Danny Ray. But before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. At Undaunted Life, our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So the link I've got for you today gets you all kinds of stuff. And it is just a link to Danny's website, dannyraymagic.com. You can buy the book there. You can watch the video of when he was on uh, Fool Us with Penn and Teller. All that information is there. You can check it out. All right, guys. Thanks so much for listening to the show. We do appreciate it. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive five-star review you. If you want me to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. You can follow us on Instagram and TikTok and like us on Facebook, and you can check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. And we want to also thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is their song Cutting the Ties, which is off their 10th anniversary re-recording of their album Leveler. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep pushing back darkness, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical resilience, keep seeking the Lion of Judah.